0: section 19 of the life of viscount palmerston by lloyd charles sanders this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter 10 the conclusion of the russian war 1855 to 1856 part 1 when the coalition cabinet fell amidst a chorus of derisive laughter at the completeness of its defeat the popular voice loudly called for lord palmerston to take command of the ship of state and bring her through the storm the mandate which summoned pitt to supplant addington in eighteen o four was hardly more imperious than that which in 1855 designated palmerston as the successor of aberdeen several weeks earlier that well-informed observer mr greville had seen in the home secretary's improved position at court the removal of the most serious obstacle between him and the premiership lord palmerston was in fact as he himself wrote to his brother l'inévitable and he added the happy quotation Quad nemo promitere divum, o derit volvenda dies et atulit ultro. Derby and his followers, however, formed the principal part of the majority which had turned out the government, and the Queen, true to constitutional principles, summoned him to Windsor. The Tory chief sought the support of Lord Palmerston, to whom he offered the leadership of the House of Commons, which Mr. Disraeli was ready to surrender. His first answer appears to have been not unfavorable. But when the decided refusals of Mr. Gladstone and Mr. Sidney Herbert to take office, and finally of Lord Clarendon to join a conservative ministry as foreign secretary, showed that he would have to go over to the conservatives alone, he determined to decline the proposal. And Lord Derby, greatly to the disgust of his followers, gave up the attempt. Lord Lansdowne's and Lord John Russell's efforts were even shorter-lived. The former statesman could only be induced to undertake the premiership for a few months, and Lord John, though Palmerston, at the especial request of the Queen, magnanimously proposed him support, soon discovered that his recent displays of faction had so completely disgusted even his old Whig colleagues that he was in the position of a general without an army and after less than forty-eight hours he too was compelled to retire l'inévitable then came to the rescue his way having been made smooth for him by the representations of lord clarendon to the queen and the question how is the queen's government to be carried on always momentous and during a european war a matter of life or death was at length answered to the general satisfaction as far as the premiership was concerned it was not without considerable difficulty that lord palmerston succeeded in forming an administration the whigs were ready enough to join him but the good offices of lord aberdeen had to be brought into play before the peelites would consent to become members of a government which they feared would be animated with too unreasonable a spirit toward negotiations for peace the ministry in its first form practically consisted of the old lot minus lord aberdeen the duke of newcastle and lord john russell and probably as a whole commanded but little confidence in fact the speedy resignation of the peelites through mr roebuck's persistence in his motion of inquiry was really in the long run a gain for what was lost in talent was gained in unity of action, and the possibly discordant effect of the accession of Lord John Russell was neutralized by his having already accepted the appointment of plenipotentiary at the conference at Vienna. Still, the delay in forming a cabinet can hardly have been without its disquieting effect, a feeling which was increased by the confusion which accompanied the minor appointments the premier's cheerful acceptance of the situation was highly characteristic ha ha he laughed a comedy of errors it was a dark hour in the history of the nation when lord palmerston essayed the task which had been abandoned by the tried wisdom of derby lansdowne and john russell far away in the crimea the war was dragging on without much hope of a creditable solution though the winter of discontent and mismanagement was happily over the existence of the european concert was merely nominal the allies had discovered many months previously that though austria was staunch prussia was a faithless friend and there were even alarms that frederick william might be dragged by his family connections and by what mr kinglake happily calls his collection of fears into a russian alliance between the belligerent powers the cloud of suspicion and distrust grew thicker for abd el majid was known to be freely squandering his war-loans on seraglios and palaces while kars was starving and though there was no reason for distrusting the present good faith of the emperor of the french his policy was straightforward only as long as he kept himself free from the influence of the gang of stock-jobbers and adventurers who composed his ministry nor was the horizon much brighter on the side of england a series of weak cabinets and the absence of questions of organic reform had completely relaxed the bonds of party if there was no regular opposition Still less was there a regular majority, and the temper of the House of Commons was seen in its ungracious and almost jeering refusal of the Premier's request that the inquiry into the conduct of the war, moved for by Mr. Roebuck, should be postponed. In the hand that was to restore order out of chaos was not so steady as of yore, whether from temporary ill-health or from the worry consequent on forming the administration, there can be no doubt that Lord Palmerston was not himself during the first weeks of his leadership. But the prospect readily brightened. Though Palmerston was considerably over seventy, he still retained a wonderful vigour of constitution he was soon restored to health and was always to be found at his post. At least he had not to contend with divided councils, for the first Palmerston cabinet, though perhaps not remarkable in point of ability, seems to have worked very smoothly. The Prime Minister was of course an ideal colleague and retained to the last those qualities of courage resource good temper and indifference to abuse and steadiness to his friends which lord brougham had described him as exercising in the grey cabinet of the new men by far the greatest acquisition was sir george cornwall lewis who though absolutely inexperienced had talents and business aptitudes which enabled him to fill with credit the office of chancellor of the exchequer even though he had been preceded by a magician of finance like mr gladstone of the old hands lord lansdowne brought with him the authority of a nestor and according to mr hayward aided the premier in giving tone to the cabinet discussions but of all that sat around the council table the most valuable ally was unquestionably lord clarendon the foreign secretary told Greville that nothing could be more harmonious than his relations with the premier. And if Lord Palmerston is to be blamed for his insubordination to Melbourne and Russell, it is only fair to remember that he allowed his own foreign secretaries the utmost latitude of action. Lord Clarendon's chief service was that of keeping the premier on good terms with the queen always telling her everything likely to ingratiate Palmerston with her, and showing her any letters or notes of his calculated to please her, as Greville says, and his management of foreign affairs was characterized by a conciliatory firmness which was of incalculable value at a period when fretfulness and discontent were rife in courts and embassies. Though the supporters of the government were lukewarm, the divided state of the opposition gave peculiar opportunities to a statesman who possessed in a degree excelled perhaps only by pitt and disraeli the arts of parliamentary management if a tenth of the stories that are told of lord palmerston's consummate generalship of the supreme skill with which he seized on the exact moment for summing up the debate and taking the division are true he must have been in his element in the guerrilla warfare which was the chief feature of the sessions of eighteen fifty five and eighteen fifty six a young tactician would have been confused by having to resist an attack from the conservatives on one day on the ground that the government was entertaining overtures for peace which were dishonorable from the peace party on the next because they did not bring the war to an immediate termination but not so lord palmerston he turned his heaviest guns on the conservatives and paid little or no attention to the peace party, knowing well enough that they were wholly out of sympathy with the country. "'I cannot reckon Cobden Bright and company for anything,' he wrote to Sir Hamilton Seymour, and Mr. John Morley acknowledges the justice of the estimate. When, however, the Peelites, and notably Mr. Gladstone, who had been partners in the declaration of war, Threw themselves with great inconsistency into the arms of the Peace Party, Lord Palmerston saw that the time for resolute action had come. His reply to a speech of Mr. Gladstone's, made on the 30th of July, in depreciation of the continuance of war, was crushing in the extreme. No man, he said, could have been a party to entering into the great conflict in which we are engaged. No man, at least, ought to have been a party to such a course of policy, without having deeply weighed the gravity of the struggle into which he was about to plunge the country, and without having satisfied his mind that the cause was just, that the motives were sufficient, and that the sacrifices which he was calling upon the country to make were such as statesmen might consider it ought to endure. Sir... There must indeed be grave reasons which could induce a man who had been a party with Her Majesty's government to that line of policy, who had assisted in conducting the war, who had, after full and perhaps unexampled deliberation, agreed to enter upon the war, who, having concurred after that full and mature deliberation in the commencement of the war, had also joined in calling upon the country for great sacrifices in order to continue it and who had up to a very recent period assented to all the measures proposed for its continuance i say there must indeed be grave reasons which would induce a man who had been so far a party to the measures of the government utterly to change his opinions to declare the war unnecessary Unjust and impolitic, to set before the country all the imaginary dangers with which his fancy could supply him, and to magnify and to exaggerate the force of the enemy and the difficulties of our position. End of section 19.